Hello, Literature Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I'm going to give a shout out to Ashley Dore, who just became a Patreon supporter. Thank you so much, Ashley. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. Lots of really cool incentives there. This week, we talk about Pope Francis's recent comments about music in the liturgy. I'm sure you'll be very fascinated. So without further ado, episode nine of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. There is your intro solo from Chris. Very rarely do we have to rein it in on Chris and say, hey, come on. I know. Well, guess what? I have another shout out. Or just a shout out. Do you know what happened here? What? I'm here at Benedictine College, as you know, and somebody has a daughter who wants to maybe come here so they're visiting the campus and the dad said oh i heard this guy Dennis mcnamara from the liturgy guys is there any chance i could meet him i'm a listener to the podcast so (laughs) at least one person in the world thinks that uh i'm an attribute to this campus so his name is vince and uh he's very nice and loves our podcast so hello vince hope you're well good to meet you the other day nice that's awesome we had um, we had visitors from the podcast stop through from from Canada on their way to vacation uh, in Chicago. Canada, eh? Yeah. So yeah. So that would that would be a shootout. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, that reminds me of our good that friend, is so good, <laughs> Father Jeffrey Kerslake, who's from Canada. Oh eh? yeah. And he used to come by with his smiles, and he'd give me this piece of candy, and it was chocolate, and it was made. And it was named for this woman. And just I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Old lady woman makes candy. Turns out it's like the one who told the British the Americans were coming or something. So she's this traitor to America. And he would make me eat this candy every day. Father Jeffrey Kerslake. <laughs> oh, it was like a subtle insult. Yeah. It'd be like giving Paul Revere candy to a, to a British person, you know. So little I'm wow. like chewing on this chocolate. And he's like, oh, that's named for, you know, Molly Ringwald or whatever her name was. And, Molly uh, Ringwald? It wasn't Molly Ringwald. It was maybe Molly somebody Anyway, she was the great traitor to America. She's Canadian, so that she, I think she's a heroine, but we don't. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I wanted to, uh, I had to look up this, this guy's name. Sorry, Bill Bill Anepka and his wife, they're the ones that uh, stopped in from Canada. So shout out, shoot out to those guys. Yeah. Oh, that turned into an Irish accent at the end, so <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> Actually, I think it became a little bit Yiddish, those guys. Oh, oh man. Uh, all right. But we're talking about the same darn thing. Because you know what? Liturgy. Nobody, <laughs> nobody ever gets tired of saying, Charlesolichitudini. God bless you. Charlesolichitudini. That is an old that joke. Thing. That's an I old know. joke. I know. And it never, that, we never get tired of that. But you know who also never gets tired of saying Charlesolichitudini? Mm, Pope Francis. Pope Francis or whatever Pope. Jesus happens to be. Well, (laughs) I'm sure Jesus has many. Jesus has many cares as well. That's what that means. Among the many solicitudes, or you know, I didn't even know what that was supposed to mean. So that's news to me. Wow, good. That's the Monte Proprio of Pius X. Remember from 1903, and it's about liturgical music, and uh, it begins among the many cares that the Pope has. 
none is less important than music. So tralas solicitudini. So guess what? What happened, what? Chris? You know what happened, Chris? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> On September twenty eighth, two thousand nineteen. Not yeah, very Pope long Francis ago. met with the the Sistine Choir. No, is the Scole Cantorum of the Italian Association of Saint Cecilia. So oh, that's my next guess. Oh. Yeah, that's my next guess. Cecil- <laughs> oh, Cecilia. Oh, that's great. Sicilians. I like it. Well, yeah, that's what they're <laughs> called. There's a, there's this thing called the Neo-Sicilians, which are, it's a kind of music, but then these, it comes but, from these Sicilia singers. It, yeah, but so not, from, not from Sicily. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. No, not, <laughs> this is not deep dish pizza. This is St. Cecilia, the organist who, you know, played the organ that didn't exist in her time until she died. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're called the Association of St. Cecilia. In other words, they're musicians we like to talk about music, right? So he gives him this little thing to say hello. And guess what? He says the same darn thing that every other pope has said for the last 120 years. So, Boring. Which is? Well, Pius X, Charlotte's Legitudine, do what it says, chant, scola cantorum, liturgical music is different from other music. That was 1903. No, no I think it's a good point. He's got, he mentions Pius X in this, uh, Benedict XVI in this, Paul VI in this. and so Those are I some heavy hitters in there. Well, well, yeah, I think he's uh, situating himself, at least, I mean, in this um, presentation is absolutely, this is, this is what popes talk about when it comes to sacred music. Right, and he says Pius X in Tralis Lichitudini gave the people of God organic provisions on religious music, which I think is an interesting way to say it. In other words, that the music grows organically out of the nature of the liturgy itself. And when he quotes Paul VI, he says um, he wanted music to be renewed to provide uh, a music that integrates with the liturgy and derives its fundamental characteristics from it. Okay, so that's a really important point. I think we tend to think the liturgy is this sort of thing we do, and then we just pick three songs or four songs and do whatever we want, as opposed to saying the other way around, okay, what is the nature of the liturgy and how do we make music that is appropriate to that liturgy? And so it's a really important thing. So here we have Pope Francis, not, what, a month and a half ago saying this and putting himself in the same uh, line. And he says, not just any music, what kind of music would it be if it's not just any old music in the liturgy? Chant? Well, first he gets to that, well, later, but first he says it's holy music. Oh, be- yeah. Because rituals are holy. Endowed with the nobility of art, because God must be given the best, and universal so that everyone can understand and celebrate. So these are the three principles that come out of Trellis Lechituni. But when sure, you tease well, it, them, yeah. it, it's what, what uh, he calls them character, fundamental characteristics here. What, I, it's maybe it's a matter of translation, Dennis. But in uh, Trolley Solitudine, aren't these referred to like as qualities of sacred music? It must be holy and uh, um, good, true, uh, true, true, art. true art and, and uh, universal. universal. Right. So you know he doesn't put quotation marks around Trolley Solitudine, but he knows that that's what it's about. So if the rituals are holy, then the music should be holy. Um, the nobility of the art means we give God the best, at least as he says it here, and then universal so anyone can understand and celebrate. So this is how Pius X was talking about chant, right? Because it, by definition, kind of grew in holiness with the holiness of the liturgy. It was proper to the liturgy and proper to the rituals. And it had this long period of development and had this kind of true art and then uh, universal in that the chant was universal to every nation on earth. We tend to think of chant as kind of stuff that happens in the Vatican on big feast days for Westerners, but really chant is the 
is the music of the entire Roman church. And it's what's proper to the Roman liturgy is what uh, all the documents say. You know, what I find interesting about all this, Dennis, is in the, right, so these three qualities or characteristics, you know, all the way back from 1903, which of course they didn't, weren't invented necessarily, but they were first articulated then in Trale Solicitudini. You hear all the popes talk about these same things. Yet, um, you know, at least in the United States, you know, we have kind of proper norms and legislation. The current uh, iteration of that is called Sing to the Lord, Music and Divine Worship. But what, before that we had music, music and, and Catholic worship. worship and liturgical music today. And at least in these documents, um, it, it was almost as if uh, these three qualities or characteristics were, I don't know, somehow not applicable or not usable or not helpful. And so we came up with our own types of uh, criteria, right? So I think there's the liturgical criteria and the pastoral criteria and the musical criteria. And these are helpful, but these three qualities that Pope Francis is outlining here have stood the test of time. They're not, this isn't some sort of uh, historical you know, factoid. I mean, these are the three qualities that are still meant to guide liturgical music as it's celebrated today. Right. Not to mention that they were repeated in 1928 on the 25th anniversary of Trialis Celestitudini, then in 58, then in Vatican II itself, and then in documents after that, and then the current general instruction and John Paul's chirograph on sacred music. So, you know, I think for a pope, it must be the easiest thing in the world to give a talk on music because all you do is summarize. You just, yeah, the, you the, just the, say the what other, other people did. Right, right. <laughs> And yeah, I, it, because it's it's kind of worked out, right? Like we figured out what music is. It grows from the liturgy. It's holy. It's good art. It's universal. And he says here too, it's clearly distinct and different from that used for other purposes. In other words, secular music doesn't just drop into the liturgy uh, because we want to be, you know, supposedly relevant to our time. It is different from that used for other purposes. Just, he uh, quotes uh, uh, Paul the Sixth here. He says, "Not everything is valid. Not everything is lawful. Not everything is good." Mm-hmm. How more emphatic uh, can he make it? Right. Paul VI, right? He's the guy who implemented Vatican II, so he would know if this is proper to uh, to its time. And so um, here we have Pope Francis in the same line of the popes before him. So what's that going to mean? Like, are people going to read that and be like, oh, okay, let's do it? <laughs> well, this is what he says, um, that... He's talking to this association of musicians, right? And he says their job is to um, have a program of love and fidelity to the church, right? So in other words, do what the church asks and to engage singing as an integral part of the liturgy inspired by the first model. What do you think would come right after that, Jesse? Uh, The second model. No. (laughs) What's the first (laughs) model for liturgical music? The what best exemplifies holiness and universality and chant. nobility? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, sorry. Pope that Francis was like so words, obvious right? that I thought I was going to be wrong. <laughs> no, Pope Fran- put the quotation marks around Pope Francis. He says, make singing an integral part of the liturgy inspired by the first model Gregorian chant. So that's an important thing. An integral part of the liturgy does not mean that you just pick five songs that you like and sing them at the beginning, the end, and the middle just because you want to, but to say, okay, let's sing the things that are the liturgy itself. Things like antiphons, things like the, the ordinary, the mass, you know, the Kyrie, Gloria, Agnus Dei, and so on. And so he doesn't quite say it here, but what can we infer from this about the role of hymns in the liturgy? That they're not as important? Yeah, they're not in, really encouraged, right? Well, they're 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 um, not discouraged, but they're they're situated according to their prominence. 
And the prominence in the Eucharistic liturgy, the Mass, is pretty low, generally speaking. It's a permitted option, but it's not in the nature of the liturgy itself, and it's not the first model, and it's not an integral part of the liturgy for the most part, right? Except for the the Gloria, which is a hymn, right? Yeah, yeah. But this is, I think, is a real paradigm shift from how most uh, most people, most musicians, even look at uh, musical priorities uh, and rank them in the as they prepare and sing music. Because I think that I mean, almost in my experience, what people talk about when it comes to music in the mass is just about hymns. You know, that garners most of the the heat and the fire and the opinion and all the things like that. But they're in the mind of the church, they're they're, they're pretty low on the on the spectrum. Has there been any pope? Um, in the recent years to declare that uh, hymns should be sung? Like, is there is there any instance of somebody with authority proclaiming the importance of hymns? Because I, I can't think of any. Do you remember uh, when that indult is? Chris, is that Pius Twelfth who gave that indult for yes. singing hymns at low mass? Yes. And the only reason I know this, Dennis, thank you for asking. Is that because, 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 because you are a genius. No. For Hillenbrand books, I'm about to will is about to publish a book uh, of called Principles of Sacred Liturgy Forming a Sacramental Vision. That sounds like yeah. a terrible book. And you know what you didn't say is that you are the author, Chris. Yes, Chris. Oh, that sounds yes. like an amazing book. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a chapter on uh, these types of things because music is a key uh, uh, symbol in the ritual system of the church and be able to hear it properly and sing it properly is to kind of sing the heavenly hymn with uh, with Christ and all of those in heaven. But yes, in the, in doing this this uh, one chapter of the book, I think there it 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 is in uh, what the I know this so well, Dennis. What's the name of the uh, encyclical on sacred music? Is it De Musica? Music, Musica Sacri. I think so. Once Which one? There's, the there's, there's twelfth. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah. Sacra Musica Sacra is Sacra Liturgia. That's the instruction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the encyclical, though. And you guys I think are it's, nerds. That's music is Yes. Yeah. In in that, he talks about the singing of hymns at recited masses or low masses, where the priest is uh, will say the parts, and after those parts uh, are sung in Latin, people can sing hymns at the celebration of those masses. But this, all right. So this is not at the sung form of the mass, but this is at a at a low or recited mass. People can sing hymns kind of over the top or on the surface of the actual text of the Mass. Because it's better than doing nothing, right? That it's would be better kind than of the doing nothing. But it's certainly not the model, and it's certainly not the ideal. But of course, the, the problem is that this low model hymn singing at Mass has become, in all practical purposes, the norm and the standard in the in most of the liturgies that we see right. uh, ponder, today. Ponder the irony of this. Chris yeah. and Jesse yes. and listeners out there. I always do. Across the ocean and every ship at sea. We are using the preconciliar special permission indult to sing hymns the beginning, middle, and end of Mass as the normative postconciliar after Vatican II way of singing. We are doing the pre Vatican II way of singing in 99% of parishes <laughs> wow. in the country. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Yes. I didn't really ever think about that. Yeah. But Jesse, that seems to be, that, that, to my mind, that's the most uh, important pronouncement on hymns used at the liturgies from Pius XII in 58, because this is, this is what has had legs all the way up till today. So are you right. saying that rad trads sing hymns? 
<laughs> yeah, even the traditional, even the traditional hymns. People might wow. say, oh, "I get to sing the old-fashioned hymns at mass." Now I know I'm going to a traditional mass or something. Well, it's not really the tradition beyond this. I mean, if what the liturgical reformers wanted was there's proper texts called antiphons, entrance antiphon, communion antiphon, offertory antiphon, and at least in the older missal, and those are the the words that the church wants the people in the pews to hear at mass and we are denying the, liter- the laity their proper post-vatican II participation isn't you know, that crazy would, dennis this uh, adam bartlett pointed this out to me and i think it's in 1968 the congregation for divine worship or whatever its name was then talked about the permission that had been given to sing hymns at the mass no mm-hmm. longer stands mm-hmm. what's to be sung at the mass is the texts of the mass the antiphons and the propers and to do anything other than that is to i think the word they use at least in translation is to cheat the people of the liturgical texts that are rightfully theirs wow who knew who I think exactly knew. yeah i think when, like the, most people think that Vatican II allowed us to sing hymns, but I guess people don't really think about the fact that Vatican II was actually trying to maybe get rid of the hymns so that we could sing the texts of the Mass. Yeah, well, well Vatican II itself didn't, but the, the post-conciliar instructions right. and the general instruction of the Roman Missal right, certainly yeah. gave preference to things other than hymns. You know, all the way at the beginning of this presentation, though, right, what Dennis, you said that the music is to be integrated with the liturgy. I mean, so sing the most integral texts. That would rather, be the text from the, the missile itself. Right, rather than the peripheral text. Right. And we're not so, even talking about like questionable theology in some of the modern texts or all the self-expressive ones. We're just talking about the basic concept that there's a, a text for the entrance procession and the church gives it and we kind of ignore it a lot of the time. And this, in, this includes even some of the more traditional hymns like you said, like that we'll sing maybe for the Liturgy of the Hours or anything like that. Right, or you know, think about how great thou art or the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are, they're good, right? Singing. Oh God beyond all praising. Right, and they're kind of liturgical often if they're addressed to God in, in the hymn form, but they may or may not be the proper text that the church gives for that well, they're never the proper text the church gives for that day. And that's always the uh, the preferred text wow. to use. I got to tell you, my mind is fully blown right now. That's <sighs> Yeah. Well, and here it is growing right out of uh, Pope Francis. You know, he's talking again to this group of musicians. So he says, together you should promote the presence of the Scola Cantorum in every parish community. What's a Scola Cantorum? Because in the liturgical movement, they're really trying to bring back the Scola Cantorum. Do you know what that is, Chris or Jesse? I don't know what that is. Well, it's the choir, basically. It's yeah, a school. I mean, it's, of, it's a school, school of, singers of singers that uh, they, through learning and study and practice and execution and leadership, uh, they. Well, he he, Pope Francis names again the the same old things that the church does. The the Scola Cantorum has two principal goals. One is to to help foster and lead the singing of the assembly, but also to sing those parts that are proper to themselves that the assembly would be listening to, you know, with mind and heart rather than singing uh, with their voice. Right. And traditionally, the Scola Cantorum, when it was re-founded, or at least Pius X and others were indicating they wanted them to come back, it was a, a group of singers specifically to to sing ecclesiastical chant. I mean, that was the original intention. And of course, they would often do polyphony and some other things. But I think what he was trying to get at was, instead of just a group of musicians or Miss Mary Smith, a local soprano, singing her Ave Maria Schubert uh, solo after communion to say, okay, what's in the proper nature of the singing? And, you know, in the early scola, early churches, the scola cantorum was the clergy. I mean, they were the 
the singers of a cathedral school or of a, a, a monastery. So if you think about a monastic um, foundation, and I happen to be fortunate enough to see one pretty much every day here at Mass, and the, the monks come out on Sunday and they sing the responsorial psalm together, that's a little scola cantorum. They're singing traditional chant. And so eventually it became, you know, the parish choir as we think of it now. But scola cantorum is, I think, a precise word rather than just saying choir uh, generally. Mm. And it keeps going, right? The choir guides the assembly with specific repertoires. It's the voice of spirituality, communion, tradition, and liturgical culture. I think that's very interesting. How do you hand on the great tradition from one generation to the next, especially in music, if there isn't this scola cantorum to to carry it from the kind of stuff your father and grandfather and great-grandfather and grandmother sang to what we do today? There's this, uh, jump ahead a little bit, but towards the end, he talks about, uh, on this this same point, Dennis, sacred music reveals uh, the joining Christian history together. Mm -hmm. In the liturgy resound Gregorian chant, polyphony, congregational singing, and music of the present day. It is as though all the generations, past and present, were there to praise God. Which is by definition how the mystical body works, right? You have saints who are alive on earth in a past age, but are nonetheless still worshiping with us. You have the heavenly future coming back into our own time. And so if you just do something that was written yesterday and it doesn't have any roots or it doesn't have branches that reach up to heaven, you're just kind of missing something. But but how many times, I've heard this many times, and maybe you have too, you know, try singing. So I'm the music director by default in my own little parish. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, try singing song twos, song twos, and people telling you afterwards that the Second Vatican Council got rid of Latin in the liturgy and you're not supposed to sing that anymore. And, but, of course, the, the council never said that, and now you have Pope Francis saying Gregorian chant, polyphony, congregational song, and music from the present day is to be heard at the liturgy. So, mm. I mean, this is that's a very common uh, misunderstanding of, of, mm-hmm. of the legislation and the history and I mean, I wasn't conscious, you know, or even born immediately after Vatican II, but you kind of have to say, worst implementation ever, right? Like, how did we, we're supposed to be implementing Vatican II, right? And they got it all backwards. I mean, amazingly backwards. How could that, how could that have happened? I don't know. But if we were rolling out a product, man, the company would be bankrupt, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Well, in some ways, ways, moving right along. (laughs) So back to some of Pope Francis's high theology here. He's talking about music being a gift from God. And that's an interesting thing about the theology of artists is that they have a capacity when they're real true artists to see beyond the mediocrity of the world and to bring the heavenly future into our own time. And he says, you see this word? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Detoxifies yeah. us from mediocrity. Yeah. Towards, yeah. That's a yeah. Really great I love that. Words, that's great. Right? right. And if, you know, if the world is full of toxic ideas, bad music, well, if the, if beauty detoxifies us, then awesome, right? That's what it should do. Um, a privileged tool for approaching the transcendent. You know, there's lots of ways to think about the transcendence of God, but there's something about music that he says is a message even to those who are distracted. So, you know, your kids are fighting with each other or you're thinking about something else or whatever, but then this beautiful music is sort of surrounding you. And even if you're distracted, there's something about it that can change your mind and lift your mind. Oh, wow, something is happening. This is what people do when they go home and turn on music or in their car or whatever. There's something about music that um, changes your your mood and your disposition. Somebody called me a privileged tool once, but I don't think it was in the same context. I don't think so either. I'd say it's more like a privileged encounter. Oh, okay. Jesse, with with you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, oh, yeah. bring in, in, in 
probably this is something Pope Francis is more interested in than maybe the other popes, but uh, he says that singing together in this higher language of music will bring people together, even if they don't feel that they are close. Um, there's a group where one encounters availability and mutual help, and that is actually very interesting. You know, as a person who's done a lot of singing over the years myself, there there are always better singers than I am, and uh, I, I want to stand near them because they know the parts that they have it memorized. And you're standing, you know, two inches from somebody in a rehearsal or in a performance, and you develop a kind of closeness uh, that way. And so this binding together of the mystical body through the singing of, of, of music together is actually uh, a thing that I don't think the other popes have, have talked about it building up the community in these bonds of closeness uh it's pretty cool addition to the the tradition of what the popes have said about liturgical singing all right i love it this was really cool i really like this conversation and it gives me some more information about how to have these conversations with people because it can be very difficult sometimes because people like what they like and they get really really attached to it without that logical sense of like what are they actually doing and what's the purpose of all of this Right. And at the end of the day, we should probably say hymns are not illegal, right? They're not illicit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're just not the preferred option that the church gives for what ought to be sung at Mass. They, hymns are, are permitted when you can't do the other options for various reasons. Um, but I think it's an antidote to the idea. Well, we just pick three hymns because that's all we've ever heard of. So Yeah, could, there, could there my daughter eat ice cream for dinner? Yes. Yeah. Should she? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe you not know? every day. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, every now and then. Can I eat ice cream every day? Yeah, I sure do. Absolutely. All right, should we answer a question? Oh, yeah. Yes. All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Alex. Alex says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, hello Alex. Alex. Uh, Alex says, I have a question about exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. If a priest or deacon is not available, can a lay person process through the church with the Blessed Sacrament? Thank you and God bless. I assume he's uh, talking about either with a monstrance or a pix. Mm, yeah, there's kind of two different questions. I mean, if a priest or deacon cannot do it, uh, a qualified and appointed lay person can expose the Blessed Sacrament, either just putting the, the ciborium on the altar or putting the, what would they call it? The, the uh, luna. Lu, luna or lunette in the monstrance. But I don't know what processing through the church is. I mean, it would be going from the tabernacle to the altar. Besides that, there's, I don't think the, the a lay person certainly would have no business uh, doing some sort of mini Eucharistic procession. At yeah, least. it says process through the church, so I think that's what he's talking about, or she. But I, I, hmm, I don't. I I at least can't picture the circumstances where a lay person would do that. There but could you could. Be some. Uh, would there be any further? Thing in the, uh, what's the document about worship of the Eucharist outside of Mass? Uh, yeah, there's a document called Holy Communion Worship of the Eucharist Outside of Mass. 
It's a mouthful, but it will give the layperson permission to expose and later repose the Blessed Sacrament without giving the blessing. But when you go to this different chapter about Eucharistic processions, I don't think there's any mention of a layperson doing anything like that. And there's all these other issues, like if you have a uh, adoration chapel, you know, I've, I've been to some of them, and I think the bishop ultimately can decide what you can or cannot do with an adoration chapel, but I've been to some for lack of a better way of describing it, where the tabernacle is kind of on a lazy Susan, and if no one's there, you kind of spin spin around so that it's not exposed. Or I've seen in some chapels like little curtains that will veil the monstrance if nobody's there. Is that is that reposition and exposition? Is that considered well, that? Maybe loosely. The, the books don't describe that happening. Okay. But... Um, yeah, I, I know it does happen, maybe as a way to facilitate, uh, you know, adoration before the exposed Blessed Sacrament, but it's not really, you can't find anything like that in the books, we always say that. All right. Alex, I hope that answers your question, and if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, or tweet us at liturgyguys, or tweet Dennis at DMAX Supertaster, or tweet Chris at... <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. This joke is never going to get old. I love it. That should be his uh, his Twitter handle, Crickets. Crickets. (laughs) Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.